If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hey there, leading ladies. Welcome to the Woman Physicians Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Herbert, a two-time best-selling author, speaker, family physician, and executive leadership coach with over 20 years experience of providing primary care and serving as a healthcare leader. If you are a woman physician ready to make a change in your career and have a seat at the leadership table, then you are in the right place. I'm excited to provide you with the crucial skills you need to be a successful leader and strategies to deal with workplace challenges. So put on your headphones and listen as we explore the new world of building women physician leaders. Hello, leading ladies, and welcome back to another episode of the Women Physicians Lead podcast. I am your host, Dr. Lisa, your board-certified family physician, best-selling author, speaker, and executive leadership coach. And I help physicians transition into leadership roles so that they can be the respected voice in healthcare. So in this new series, Women Physicians on the Front Line, I'm excited to bring you some awesome women physicians who are doing amazing work. We're going to talk about the challenges they face, as well as educate the community about the current strain on the healthcare system. So today for this episode, I have with me Dr. Sarah Ann Anderson. Burnett, MD, PhD. She is an assistant professor in pediatrics, associate program director for the Adolescent Medicine Fellowship and inaugural diversity, health, equity, inclusion, and justice quality lead for the Department of Pediatrics at Columbia University Irvine Medical Center. She is a graduate of Xavier University of Louisiana and attended the Iken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai for both her MD and PhD. Dr. Anderson Burnett completed her residency in pediatrics and chief residency at NYP Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. Her doctoral studies led to the discovery of innovative brain mapping techniques that underscored the role that stress plays in both depression and heroin addiction. Dr. Anderson, on a national level, has served as an ACGME Equity Matters Review Panel, a fellow and inaugural member of the Bias and Sensitivity Review Panel for the American Board of Pediatrics Certification Exam. She has a long history in um, academia and a long commitment to health equity, social justice, and operational excellence by incorporating these principles into clinical and scholastic frameworks. So again, I'm excited to bring to you today, Dr. Sarah Ann Anderson Burnett, MD. Welcome to the Women Physicians Lead Podcast. Good morning. Thank you. You're so welcome. So I'm really excited to talk with you today to learn more about you, sort of your journey, and also to talk with you about the work that you're doing at Columbia and just in general, especially during these times of, that we're having with the pandemic. The first question I have for you is thinking about your career and leadership journey, who are what may have been instrumental in that decision? 
That's a really fantastic question. And again, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Throughout my journey, there have been multiple key figures that have really been transformative and really guided me towards where I am today. I think one of the key figures for me is my grandmother, who passed away in 2013, but has been such a central person in my life as guiding light and somebody who's truly believed in what my passions were. And so I think having somebody who, from the time that you're born, kind of frames you as this genius, you're like, you know, at at a certain point, as much as imposter syndrome can seep in, when somebody tells you that you are capable of doing amazing things, that you yourself are a superhero, that you are the, you know, legacy living, that does seep down into your spirit and it does become a driving force in how you see yourself. And as I've grown older and been able to see like, okay, I have grown in my confidence, I've grown and what I can do and what I can't do and being okay with that. I often kind of think about that support and that structure that I had through her and how that really uh, seeped out into the rest of my family and how my family treated me. So my family has really been really key instrumental figures. And, you know, a second big figure for me, I went to Xavier University in Louisiana and New Orleans. And for me, that was such a phenomenal experience having uh, originally being raised in New York and then moved to Oregon where I graduated high school and really being that one person of color and particularly that one person of color in classes where I was always only the only only person and people were surprised that I was in AP and IB classes. So, you know, it was a very unique experience for me to go to a place where everybody around me was Black excellence was such a unique and phenomenal experience. It really transformed, I think, how I viewed myself and prepared me in a way and empowered me in a way that when I did go back to a school that was predominantly white and becoming now minoritized person again, I still felt a sense of confidence that really drove me. And our person who was over our uh, pre-medical program was this older white man named Dr. J.W. Carmichael. And we call him J-Dub affectionately. And he was he was so invested in our success, but he did it in a very old school way. For example, freshman year, you weren't coming to class. He would call your parents. Oh, wow. And then... <laughs> call you out in class and say, I called your mama last night. She's really upset that you didn't finish your work. There was an accountability factor there. That is something that is the type of nurturing I do think is critical in order to kind of prepare you to get through some of the rigorous classes that are necessary to go to medical school. So for me, he was just like such a big figure in my life throughout those four years. And he really did. I happened to be at Xavier during uh, Hurricane Katrina. And so that was my senior year. I was Mm. in the midst of applying for medical school and then or MDPhD programs at that. And then we were completely uprooted. Right. And we all of our teachers went everywhere. So getting letters of recommendation, getting our transcript, you know, and this is at the beginning of the time where the things were in the cloud. So not everything was in cloud, in the cloud. And so we were just like, you know, will I even be able to apply for medical school? And he mobilized forces in a way that was so powerful. He partnered with people at UNC, which I'm also thankful to them, who let us use their system so that he Mm. could put in our grades, that he can make sure that we had our letters of recommendation. And it's really because of his networks, his belief in us, and his ability to just really invest in the success of America by understanding that you have to invest in Black physicians and Black people in healthcare that allowed me to be where I am today. So I'm, I'm very grateful for those two main figures in my life. That's awesome. And I think, you know, the bottom line or basically what I'm gathering from your story is that there was this sense of community that yes. really helped you, right? So not only just your family, like your grandmother and your, you know, 
other members of your family, but also people who um, just really wanted the best for you outside of your family. So that sense of community, right, Mm -hmm. was there. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So when you look at yourself as a woman physician on the front lines, um, what does that look like for you? And who do you serve? Tell us a little bit about that. And what challenges do you face in that role? So I'm a adolescent medicine physician, and you can come to that training from different ways, but I chose going through pediatrics. So I was in adolescent medicine fellowship when the pandemic struck New York and we were the epicenter. And it was a very odd time because it went from just something that was lingering in the air. And we definitely had people getting sicker in December and January, but we really assumed that there were other flu-like illnesses to it really just kind of inundating the city in a way and shutting down the city in a way that I've never experienced. And so, you know, as an adolescent medicine physician, I really sat around like, what do I do. You know, we were trying to transition to video visits, which was still a novel concept, which in in many ways shouldn't have been a novel concept at that time, because I think we should have transitioned earlier. So sometimes negative things can be an impetus for better access options. But for me, I I was really confused. I didn't know what I was going to do. Should I be going to work? Do we have enough PPE? There were a lot of questions. And what ended up happening is that they redeployed me, meaning that they, you know, typically I would be in clinic serving patients and doing rotations and learning different elements of adolescent medicine. And they redeployed me to the ICU. So I actually went from this like outpatient doctor um, (laughs) doing primary care visits and adolescent has some specialty care within it too, but doing that to working in the pediatric ICU, which had been converted to an adult ICU. So what they had done is that because the need for that level of care was so high and we had the capacity in our ICU, they converted it to like up to adults uh, ages 40. And so we were seeing these patients coming in that were in just really, really devastating states. And all of this was secondary to COVID. So it was a completely COVID positive unit. And that was an immense challenge to transition to something like that, because you're really seeing the devastating effects day in and day out of what the COVID virus, coronavirus can do. And you're also seeing, you know, in some ways it was actually beautiful because you got to see how people came together to really serve this population. I mean, this is a pediatric hospital and we're serving adults and nurses are learning new skill sets. Doctors are learning new skill sets. The pharmacists who do everything based on waste, weight, <laughs> realize we got to do all adult dosing. You know, what is that? What is the max dose? I don't know. You know, it was such a crazy challenge. And even furthermore, my role was like transferring people in and out of the unit. So all of the children's hospitals affiliated with our um, hospital organization or shut down so that they can actually accommodate adults. So every child that was acutely ill was transferred to our other ICUs. We have multiple pediatric ICUs in our hospital. And so I was in charge of directing that. Who goes where? What's the level of sickness? Do we need to support them? And it was a really challenging time. I did this for about five weeks. In the meantime, you know, I'm a newer mother at the time. This all happened. My daughter was five months. I'm still breastfeeding. I'm still trying to figure everything out and learning a new way of life. You know, sure, I've always had good hand hygiene, but to come home, strip down completely, not to be able to touch my baby, go have to take a full shower, kind of have like areas of my house kind of quarantined off. But you know, let's you know, be realistic. I'm in New York and a one bedroom apartment. Mm, <laughs> right. Needs to be away. And I have a five month old. The question was like, how much did I want to risk being away from her and being away from my husband in order to protect them from this virus? And 
that was a hard challenge. Many people did spend time in hotels. I never did. And that was a really hard decision to make for me personally. Um, But I just felt like I just wasn't ready to be away. And so I was willing to take the risk if I was doing the protective things at work. So that was my job for about five weeks. And then I had to transition from that level of acuity to being back in the office. And we weren't seeing as many patients initially. It definitely has picked up and somewhat normalized now. But it was such a tremendous change in experience. And New York was in a, it was a very odd time in New York. We just had so much going on. You felt this kind of heaviness in the city. There was nonstop ambulance, you know, sirens. There were nonstop fire truck sirens. You were hearing about death. You were seeing death. I live in a building with 400 apartments. You were seeing death announcements weekly. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a heavy, heavy time. And then we started to pivot. And as we were pivoting in New York, it's not like the rest of the country was getting hit. Mm-hmm. So it, it was almost like everybody was calling me worried about me all the time. And then all of a sudden it pivoted. And like my family that were in other places, Midwestern states, Southern states, different things like that, California, they, you know, they were really, really getting just like assaulted, I would say. by yeah. And weren't ready because so many of them had sent their nurses to us. Right. And so we're still dealing with the numbers, but it's different. And so I, I think being on the front line at that, in the acute time was very hard. Now, I think it's actually just as hard. I remember one of the first thoughts I had when it started happening and like, I'm an adolescent medicine physician. Like, what can I do? You know, I felt like I just wanted to get my hands in there and jump in and help out. And I remember telling this to my therapist and my therapist was like, I just need you to understand this is a marathon and not a race. And Mm. she was like, the effects are going to last for a long time. Your job is going to be relevant for a long time. One of the most profound things that somebody said to me during that time, because I really was just so eager. I was like, I got to help. And she was like, Mm-mm, this is going to just keep going. <laughs> she yeah. kept saying, keep going. <laughs> and now I, I understand because I'm seeing the lingering and the devastating effects on my adolescence in so many different ways, the trauma, the anxiety, the concerns, the orphaning of children, mm. the loss of parents and family members that were critical people losing housing, like just the destabilizing effects of this pandemic and how widespread they are. And so every day I'm dealing with how do we address that, you know, with you, how do I help you in with some tools to kind of deal with this because your anxiety is justified, you know, but then it can become a pathology. And so we have to figure out how do we help. So, you know, being on the front lines now has a very different definition than the acute time, but it feels just as uh, necessary as it did then. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think you just really gave us a good in-depth view, right, of sort of what was going on during the pandemic, what physicians were going through. And I think at the heart of, you know, who we are as doctors or who we are as physicians and healthcare workers, it really is serving, right? So how do we serve? How do we, so even with when this whole pandemic happened, there were doctors who were retired that came back and volunteered. And like yourself, you had had people sort of just jumping in and working in areas where they may not have worked before and sort of entering unfamiliar territories. Um, And obviously, you know, it has taken a toll on a lot of us as well as, you know, the patients that we serve. So how do you or how did you and continue to really deal with the emotional aspect of that? Like, how do you deal with, you know, all the things that you've seen, obviously, and continue to see? So how do you take care of yourself? Like what does self-care really look like for you at this point? I think self-care for me has continued to evolve 
for for me initially when the pandemic initiated around March, I had a child in September and then had a traumatic delivery and really had postpartum anxiety afterwards. And so I'm really thankful. It was both my child's pediatrician and my OB-GYN who were like, hey, I think you should get some more support and identified it very early. And so we actually had a program here where they have specific postpartum therapists. And so I've been linked to her and she stayed along with me until I transitioned back to work since I was out of work for four months. And once I started back at work, I was doing fine. And she was like, okay, we'll move on. But then she called me when the pandemic hit. I'll never forget. And she was like, hey, I don't typically do this. This is only supposed to do this for three months. But she's like, I'm worried about you. And I think I need to check in. That was powerful coming from someone who knows you in very intimate ways because they understand, you know, what drives you, what are your anxieties, what are the different parts of you that matter. And so to hear that from her was powerful. And in a way, she uh, kind of like injected herself back into my life in the most positive way possible. And it was great. I appreciate that. So that to me was like the beginning of like my self-care. Then it kind of evolved into actually working out again, which I had not been able to do actually physically. And so that was a powerful evolution as well. And like having opportunities to work at home. So there's a great spin cycle a studio here called Harlem Cycle owned by a Black woman who's phenomenal. And she rented out her bikes so you could have them in your house. And this oh, is nice. like, in my mind, Peloton was not affordable at that time. So right. I was like, let me see what I can do. And she was hosting classes online. It was really very radical for me to be able to do that and to take the time away because I my anxiety was to making me feel like I should be with my kid all the time. And so like finding that time for myself was really, really powerful. And now it's really more so evolved into incorporating those things still, definitely therapy and trying to you know stay active as possible. But for me now it's boundaries. I think that was something I was not very good at before, but as I transitioned during this time from being a fellow to new faculty. And I think as a woman of color and a black woman at that, like who's also unafraid to speak about things like structural racism and inequities, everybody's like, okay, we want her to do everything. It's interesting because I'm like, you should have more people like me. It shouldn't just be me. It's I should have a team. But because of that, they were like, okay, let's make her do this. Let's make her do that. And, oh, you should be on this committee and you should be helping with this. And none of this is actually getting compensated. And I think as we see this massive exodus of physicians and nurses even from healthcare, you have to understand like what were the additional intangible burdens that were on them, right? Mm. My job description says one thing. What I do is definitely 30 times more. And then I compare that to my white male colleagues and I'm like, interesting and you're still getting paid more so there's 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 definitely like as a, a lot of these things just become more apparent and for me as i was choosing a job i had to choose a job that allowed balance and i had to choose a job where i felt empowered to say no and so kind of staying on at the same institution where i trained was helpful in that way because i had the network I had the support and I also felt confident enough that there wouldn't be repercussions when I did say no. And so I think those were the things that really became just like radical self-care for me because I just never said no before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like that. I like the I like the term radical self-care because sometimes we do have to take radical measures, right, in order to protect our emotional and mental well-being, as well as our physical well-being also. And I think it's really, really important, especially the boundaries that you talked about, because mm-hmm. if we allow people 
obviously, as you know, to sort of take us out of what's comfortable for us, right? Or what's doable even for us. And that's when we really get into sometimes those areas where we start to see stress and anxiety and burnout. And I think it's important too for people to understand that I like how you talked about the additional intangible burdens that are placed on physicians and women specifically, you know, a lot of times, and and especially women of color, take on these extra roles, especially as it applies to diversity, equity, and inclusion, because there's not many of us to begin with, right? We talk about us being 2% of the, the whole physician population. And then to have to really feel like we have to take on this additional role of being representative sometimes in organizations as it applies to that particular area just creates another mountain of stress as well. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So I think this kind of leads me into my next question, which is why is diversity, right, in leadership as it pertains to having more women physicians and women physicians of color, especially vital to healthcare, especially when we look at the pandemic and all of the things that we've had to endure, but also all of the things that have uncovered in terms of like healthcare disparities and Mm -hmm. um, all of the things that we knew as women physicians were already taking place in equity and pay and all of those things. So for you, what is the importance of the diversity aspect in, in healthcare leadership? For me, understanding diversity and really seeking health justice is so critical because it's really speaking truth to power and breaking down systems that truly were created not to benefit people that look like me or look like my family members. And I I specifically, you know, I have a friend of mine who runs an organization called the Equitus and her focus is truly on anti-Black racism in healthcare because it's actually, it's a specific own um, beast. (laughs) And Mm. I think for me, like when we're thinking about a lot of things that are actually coming out of other issues against other groups, minoritized groups, anti-Black racism is that critical point. And for me, experiencing that here has been challenging as a a physician. I'll give you an example. Today, I had a patient mom come in and the patient is her, her background is Latinx and the mom is her adoptive mom is white. And this white woman sat and looked at me and said, I chose you because of what you look like, because she needs somebody that looks like you. And we were laughing because at the end of the interview, the girl was talking about being ashy and I gave her some free lotion samples. And her mom was like, why is this? Lo- what, why are you giving me lotion? And I was like, she'll explain it to you. But then I realized there are it's cultural nuance. It's understanding. And it's not just representation. It's actually taking the time to understand what that experience is as a marginalized identity in America is like and how can I relate and then empower you to feel confident in who you are because you know you're literally living in a society which is invalidating you in many ways and so how do you continue to show resilience i don't want to weaponize resilience i think that's an issue in general like people always complain about this generation and the adolescents and different things like that they're not resilient enough but i think they're actually probably more powerful in many ways because they are not afraid to say this isn't right and i'm not going to stand for it but so I, I think, you know, it's like a unique job to be in this work, work because I think simply by existing, we are we are like really, truly our ancestors' dreams. But then you can't simply just exist. You have to see the structures and the system itself that is actually preventing our patients from living full lives and joyful lives. What is it about the system that's broken? How am I contributing to the system? Am I actually helping to perpetuate inequities just by being in the system? Or do I, can I disrupt the system enough? to work better for those that are are not benefiting from that. And so I think for me, like this work is so powerful because it has the potential to change outcomes, to change lives, to change the next generation. I want us to 
just be able to break down these kind of generational curses that have brought us down because the structure itself is allowing for it. And so I think, you know, in doing this work, I can't do it by myself. I can't just be the only, you know, black woman working at it. I need not just allies. I need accomplices. I need people who are going to work alongside me, believe in the work enough and be able to even let go some of their privilege in order for others to actually advance. I think that's why I'm so passionate about it, even though I'm, I will never deny that I get exhausted. <laughs> I tell people this, I've literally been fighting for equity and inclusion since middle school. That's when I have my first certificate for sitting on a committee that was dedicated to that. And that's living in Oregon, which was a whole different experience for me. So I think, you know, I've been doing it for over 20 something years. It gets to be a bit much at times. It gets exhausting. It's hard to hear people with antiquated ideas and people who completely deny structural racism exist. However, I think because, and it's also something Sometimes frustrating that the needle isn't moving as fast as it should. You know, it's a very incremental advancement. And that part, I think, is hard to see. At the same time, I do know there's power in using your voice. And I do know that I have had really tremendous patient experiences because I have been there to hear them and listen to them and understand the situations and the systems that are contributing to why what they're experiencing. And so I think that alone is kind of what drives me to continue to go forward in this work, because otherwise you can get pretty jaded. And I, and I understand why people do. To be yes, honest. absolutely. And, I, that, you know, what you said about the needle not moving as fast really resonated with me because I feel like we've been here before. Right. We've been discussing <laughs> diversity, equity, inclusion for a very long time. It's taken some of the political and, and social injustices that we've seen, I think, to sort of open up maybe more dialogue and more discussion about it. Mm-hmm. The pandemic obviously is opening up more dialogue about it, but we're kind of right back where we were before, you know, for lack of a better word. And the needle, like you said, is not moving as fast as we would like. So I think for people like you and and others who really are committed to doing this work, some of the things that you mentioned earlier are very important, right? Like the radical self-care, like Mm -hmm. realizing that it's a marathon, not a race or not a sprint. And realizing how much power we do have in our voice and being able to really own that voice and really, you know, speak up when we feel that there are changes that need to be made and ask for the help that we need in order for those changes to be made as well. Yeah. And I think for me, that's why I like adolescent medicine, because I feel like I can help nurture that next generation to be those advocates for that equity that I know we deserve and the justice we deserve. And so if they feel empowered to do so, and if I can just plant a little seed in order to help get them there, I'm happy I've done my job. Right. Absolutely. So what do you want people to really know about, I mean, you told us a lot about the work that you're doing, a lot about what's really transpired during this pandemic, a lot of the work that still needs to be done. But what do you really want people to know about the times that we're in right now and what we can all do to move towards a safer and healthier environment? I think, you know, it's hard for for the ideas of liberty and freedom that America likes to um, espouse that, you know, we're not out of a pandemic. I think there are so many, um, there's so many like ways that it keeps being kind of like framed. as like, we can just transition out of this pandemic. And I think, uh, having to come to a certain level of comfort that there's always going to be risk is important. And so the question is, how do you mitigate the risk? And so as we become an even more politicized and polarized country, 
I think, you know, science can't be politicized because it's, it's a detriment to all, right? And so it doesn't matter what line you are on, like it's going to impact you and affect you in some way. And so if we have certain tools that we have now millions and millions of people, example, vaccines that have taken them without adverse effects, we need to use those tools to our advantage so that we can move forward. I think it's very hard for people to process that we're still in the midst of a pandemic. And so, you know, using, you know, some social distancing, using ideas like understanding, you may not be able to do and resume the life that you had before. And you may not want to. I mean, I think of any indicator, as I said, the great resignation, not only in physicians, but in across all lines of work has told us is that we don't want what we had before exactly. Right. And so if we can use this tragedy, because in many ways, this is a tragedy. It's a public health tragedy, particularly in America, more so than anywhere else. I think that's what's probably a little bit harder for other people to see. But I do think that there is a unique meeting. It's a pandemic. So it's like a COVID-19 pandemic. But then there is the pandemic of just structural issues that are against many of the isms. So any marginalized community and the two are meeting very clearly at this moment in time. And so, you know, we would be quite uh, remiss not to address these issues at this time and to adjust how we function as a result. So I think the key things now is like we're here. Some things are getting better. Some things may not get better. So use the tools that are available to you. Protect yourself, protect your family, and then let's figure out next steps. And so I think kind of, you know, I don't want to kumbaya, unity, whatever. I understand there are issues, but I do think if we can come together to think beyond ourselves, that's going to be the key way of us moving forward as a country and, you know, overall. Absolutely. And I think you said it just, you know, as eloquently as you did, that we really just need to start really to think about each other, be more compassionate about each other and our feelings, but be open to have dialogue, right, about Mm -hmm. where we are, what's going on, and how we can move forward. So this is a really, really important time for us to really start to understand the importance of us really pulling together. So if you were to leave some tidbits or three tips that you would want to give women physicians who may be dealing with some challenges, you know, in terms of their current role that they're in or challenges in terms of just some of the inequities maybe that we have to deal with, you know, in the mm-hmm. workplace. What would you say? What would be what would be three tips that you would give them to, you know, sort of just give them some encouragement and words of wisdom? I would say first one is one we've talked about a lot already, radical self-care. Mm-hmm. care for yourself. It's truly like if this has taught us anything, you have to prioritize yourself. You have to be fully present. And the only way you can be fully present is if you're caring for every element of yourself. And that can mean different things for different people. I think often people think of self-care as like, I'm supposed to just take a bath every night. I'm supposed to meditate. I'm supposed to do yoga. That, you know, those are good if those work for you. But it's really coming down to the point of like, what works for you and what's going to uplift you? What strengthens you? What what brings you back to yourself when you feel like work or whatever else is going on has brought you out of what is your core being? So I think that is just absolutely number one. As I mentioned, for me, it's therapy, it's working out, and it's actually seeing friends. And so I found that to be very, very powerful. Um, the second thing I think is understanding and knowing your core values and core purpose. I One of the most powerful things I did in transitioning from fellowship to becoming attending was to hire a physician coach, a Black woman physician coach. And she was so instrumental for me in figuring out what is it my life purpose? Like what I, I think... 
we think I, I thought I knew. And then I've been in structured environments learning this whole time. And all of a sudden I had to make a decision. I had to decide what this, my career was going to look like, or at least the next step. I had to decide what job I was going to take. And so for me, we sat down and really kind of honed in on what drives me. Right. And so when I sat there, it was like, OK, cultivating authentic relationships, right, being purpose driven in, in the interactions I had and really seeking that in the friendships and the people that I interact with professionally and, you know, non-professionally. So I think really identifying your core values, your core purpose is absolutely critical to success. And then the third thing I would say is identify how you in your workplace can kind of carve out a niche for yourself. The thing that you can go back to professionally that's going to uplift you, what's going to guide you. Because I think what happens is once we start getting pulled away from what's driving us, from what's uh, giving us the inspiration and, and the reason for being at work or the reason for being in this career, it starts to detract away from your core, your core values and your core purpose, right? And so now you're doing all of this other work and it means nothing. It really does not mean what it should to you or it, not what it should, but it doesn't mean what it's just basically a distraction. And so I think it's really critical to kind of find professionally what it is that you want to do and really work on that and then make very strategic decisions about if I'm being asked to do this or if this opportunity, does this align with my vision for myself or not? And I think as women, unfortunately, it's culturally acceptable for us to always be the yes people, but that's not it. That's not it for ourselves. We don't have the time. We don't have the bandwidth. We're already doing too many other things. As mentioned, the intangibles of life, not even just of your profession. If you're, you know, married and have a partner, or if you have children, I mean, all of those different elements. So I think it's really important to find that niche for yourself. Yes. Those are great tips. Thank you, Dr. Sarah. I think anyone listening to this podcast is going to be able to use some of those nuggets that you dropped and <laughs> hopefully be able to think about in their own personal development and their own professional development ways in which they can start to institute some of those things as well. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this interview thoroughly uh, and immensely. So thank you so much for being a guest today on our podcast. I can't wait to share this with everyone. And for anyone listening that would like to connect with Dr. Sarah Ann Anderson, you can connect with her on LinkedIn. Um, her LinkedIn profile is Dr. Sarah Ann Anderson. And thank you so much again for joining us. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and for allowing me to be a part of your career journey. To continue receiving leadership support, I invite you to join our private Facebook group, Building Women Physician Leaders at www.leadingladiesincharge.com. Until next time, take care. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.